Do you feel like you are just a character in a bewildering story at the mercy of an unreachable author? This week on the Lutheran Hour, Dr. Michael Ziegler says your life is really a great work of nonfiction by an author who truly loves his creation. Hear Dr. Ziegler this week on the Lutheran Hour. Sundays at 1230 and 5 p.m. on Worldwide KFUO. In 1924, we embraced the new technology of that day, radio. Since that day, we've stayed on the cutting edge of technology. There are many easy ways to listen to Worldwide KFUO. On the air, online, and on demand. We proclaim the gospel of Christ in both word and song. Now that's why you should listen. The where and the how, well, that's up to you. The messenger of good news. Worldwide KFUO. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Welcome to Bible class here this morning. Those of you here, you know who I am. But for those of us who are listening on air, thank you for joining us. Thank you for who are listening live and recorded on KFU.org. My name is Pastor Kevin Thompson. For those of you who sit in front, you know that. And I'm excited to be here. A new voice that the radio hasn't heard in a little while. But excited that today in our Bible study here at St. Paul's, we get to do as we always do and continue to look at the lectionary, assigned lectionary readings for the coming week. Before we dive into it, before we get really anywhere into our study, let's join us together in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. You have blessed each and every one of us with the opportunity to live here in your kingdom, but especially the opportunity to come here to your holy house this morning, receive your gifts, and now to be able to study your word. We pray that your spirit would bless us all in our time together and bless us so that as we hear your word and study it, we may do so to the strengthening of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, I have handouts for those who are here on the, sh- on the stand. I apologize for those of you if it's a little small. That's the only way I could do to get all the reading on one piece of paper for, for today, uh, all the readings for next week. And they're a little bit lengthy, um, but there's good reason for that. So some wonderful readings because next Sunday will be All Saints Day. I get so excited. Don't worry. I'll slow down. People on the radio are like, who's that guy talking real fast? Okay. Next Sunday is All Saints Day. We will, this will be during this week, but next Sunday in worship, we will celebrate All Saints Day. So we have a reading from Revelation chapter 7. We have a reading from 1 John chapter 3. And we also have a reading from Matthew chapter 5. Before we dive into those, just to remember, remind ourselves, on All Saints Day, we get to, one, remember those whom we love who have departed in the faith, who are now we know who are with the Lord and get to be with him eternally. So there is that remembrance. But also it's a great remembrance to remember who our Lord is. The fact that our God is good and gracious and loving. And as we'll look in the readings, look at the great promises that God has for us. So next week as we celebrate that, it's not just a day of mourning, but rather a day of great joyous celebration. Because who is our God that has given us these great gifts? And the great gifts that God gives us when we die in the faith and in his name. So, let's begin with Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. I'll go ahead and read that for us before we dive into it. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. 
Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There ends the reading for next week. Looking at this reading, we want to be note that in Revelation we hear plenty of things that, if you read the rest of Revelation, can be quite scary. Some things that, quite frankly, when you first read them, you might wonder what's going on. Okay? Not usually a book I would suggest giving to a, someone who's just come to faith or who's just learning about God. Don't start with Revelation, okay? Because there's a lot of things in there that just, one, we don't understand without really understanding the true depth of it. And the fact that also Revelation, in order to truly understand it, it, it behooves us to really know a lot more of the rest of Scripture. Because then we see all this tie-in of Scripture and Scripture. But to note that Revelation chapter 7 here is really an interlude between the sixth and seventh seals. These different seals that are open that we hear in the book of Revelation. And the whole point is that here this interlude is an interlude of comfort. So despite all the other things that you hear of and you see and maybe the fear or the, the questions that you have in Revelation, here it's just comfort. Taking a break from all this terrible stuff that will come and, and be described and just to have a word to show that in the midst of all this, God's people have no reason to fear rather to take comfort in their God. I will say that before our reading here from verses 9 and following, in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 7, we have John, who, John seeing this revelation. John sees the 144,000. I figured, I get in this Bible class, they say start with revelation. Great. You know, because all these questions, right? But 144,000 here, revelation, doesn't refer to a specific number. There's not only 144,000 in heaven. Maybe likely, and I pray, already heard that that's not a specific number, rather symbolic. That emphasize this completeness, referring to the whole body of Christians. If you think about it, there's 12 times 12,000. So utterly complete. Okay? So this 144,000 represents God's people on earth in perfect order. Or as we could also call it, the church militant. Now, there's a reason I'm backing up, and we didn't really read that, but I want to give you this picture, because right before verse 9 that we read next week, we have this picture of the 144,000 who are organized and in order, God's people, people who are completely, God, there are gods and incompleteness, but they're organized in order on earth. This church militant, ready to march off into battle. Because that's going to contrast with then, as we'll read for next weekend, as I read already from 9 through 17, we have the church triumphant. The church triumphant is the church in heaven. God's saints called to home being with him. Okay, so we know that that church militant who's here on earth, no matter what they might experience, no matter how bad the things get in this world, they are sealed for the Lord, the 144,000 sealed, because they are the gods, they are the lords. So no matter what they experience in him, they will get to experience that church triumphant, that heavenly, glorious, wonderful, endless life of worship and praise. So, we dive into verses 9 through 17, and here we have what's described for us. And we start off right in the beginning of verse 9. I looked, and behold, a great multitude. Okay? So, walking through this, we think that this great multitude, first, what is it? Who is it? What does that mean? First and foremost, a great multitude. He didn't give us a number. It's too numerous to count. It's so great. There's so much, so many people, so numerous here in heaven that we can't even count. It's simply just a great multitude, okay? But this great multitude, they are at rest. They're at peace, okay? And it says even right after a great multitude that no one could number. To put it another way, other translations might render it to be countless. Now thinking about your knowledge of the rest of Scripture, does anything come to mind when you think about God promising his people that his descendants will be so numerous, so numerous that they are countless. Abraham, right? We have the, I see the smiles as people are recalling it, right? Abraham, God promises him that his descendants will be as numerous as the star and as numerous and as countless as the grains of sand on the seashore. So here again, knowing the rest of Scripture, we get to see the beauty that here what is in Revelation. So God, who promised this to Abraham so long ago, your descendants will be numerous, those in my name will be countless. It's fulfilled. In that church triumphant, when we get to that heavenly realm, when we get to be with God forever, when we get to be in heaven with him, 
His promises are true. Okay? So, then we continue with in um, this first verse. And this great number, this great multitude who are arrayed in white robes. Significance there is that this white symbolizes purity and righteousness. Purity and righteousness that is only given, as it says, by the blood of the Lamb. Only by Jesus Christ. Which today being so fitting that we study that on today, because today we celebrate Reformation Day in our worship services here. So today we celebrate that it's only by the blood of Christ, only by Christ alone, nothing by what we do do we get to be in heaven. Only by Christ alone are we washed clean of our sins. And here we see it again, that the heavenly body of Christ together are clothed in white robes because it's only by Christ's blood that they are there. Which is sidebar, if you think about it, think about all the places you see white robes that we use in our worship services. Pastors, we wear white robes, okay, to help us show the symbolism here that we are, it's not just us sinful, but rather preaching and proclaiming in the stead of Christ. We have baptism, wearing white robes, confirmation, okay. So we can see that throughout we use these, these, other, these things that we see in Scripture to help us remind us of what Christ has done. Looking back here in the scripture, what is, the, what is this great multitude doing? In verse 9, it ends by saying, in verse 9, that this great multitude clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Okay, palm branches. Now, one, they were fairly common there in that time, in that context. But palm branches often, amongst their other uses, they were often this, this emblem for victory. This thing that was used and, and, and used to wave and, and such in the sense that there was this victory, that they were giving honor to this victor when they had these palm branches. Okay? So, we think about there again. Where else in Scripture do we have palm branches? Palm Sunday, right? Jesus Christ comes in to town and people are waving the palm branches. They're laying them down at his feet. Now, there we could also think there's a, there's a whole other story of not everyone was super thrilled about seeing them there, to put it lightly. Not everyone there thought of him as the king deserving this great honor and, and, and uh, praise for being the great victor. But we can see the significance again here that these palm branches being used for triumphant moments. What more triumphant than here in the heavenly realm with God? What more triumphant a moment than when all of God's people are together from every nation and tribe and people and language in God's glory? That's triumphant. Which again, where we get the term, the church triumphant. The church in Christ's victory forever and ever. Alright, so we continue moving then in verse 10 through 12 and we look at more. What is this great multitude doing? What does it look like here with them in heaven together? Crying out in a loud voice. So they're crying out. And then we have the angels standing around the throne and they too are worshiping God. Okay, so verse 12 here, we see that there's this crying out, or to put it in another way, this hymn of praise. They are attributing, they're having this hymn of praise that is attributing to God their salvation. Which, to some may sound redundant, okay, great, of course they're there, why wouldn't they be saying praise? But to reemphasize, we have scripture showing us that what they're doing isn't just sitting around enjoying it, but they're also then giving praise to God. Attributing to him this great glory and victory that they have is all because of God. And so it's this, this song, this hymn that they have to God. But then also, if you read the rest of Revelation, which might take you a little time, okay? But if you read from the beginning to the end of Revelation, you'll see ongoing throughout, scattered throughout that book, are different parts of this hymn of praise to God. Or as we also call it, Te Deum, giving it to God, right? We sing a Te Deum often in our worship service, giving honor and glory and praise to God, attributing to Him our salvation. And here, we just have a part of that. This part in which there's me singing. Now, it's interesting, I will point out that here, as in verse 10, when they're singing, it's actually um, being sung by the, the saints, those who are in Christ, those who are made righteous in Him. But throughout the rest of Revelation, you'll see it sung by angels um, alone, singing hymns of praise to God, or you'll see a combination of angels and the saints. Point being, lots of singing. A lot of hit praise and singing to God for giving Him the glory for what they received. Alright, so we continue moving verse 13 and 14. You have this elder who addresses John. And his elder says to John in verse 13, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? 
Now, this elder being present here, and, and, and some might say, well, why is the elder asking? He's present here. He knows what's going on. Well, let's not read too much into this. Because the best thing I found as I was doing my study for this is really, it's just an elder that in the midst of all this awe that John is struck by. I mean, imagine if you're John and you're seeing all this, this vision, this revelation that God gives you. I, I don't know about you, but I'd be rather struck. So John, most likely what we see in commentaries is that John is just so struck in awe by what he's seeing that then this elder is asking this question to draw us our attention to it. So not to, I don't want us to go down the path of thinking, well, the elder didn't know what was going on. No, the elder is simply asking this question that likely John would have asked anyways. Okay, so he asks, who are they and from where did they come? John says, you know. So then the elder answers in verse 14. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Okay. First read this. I don't know about you, but you see these are the ones who came out of the Great Tribulation. Like we got to do some study on this. Because this term right here is one I think oftentimes can, people don't understand or they just hear and they just take and run with. So let's think about this for a moment. The Great Tribulation. What is it? Okay. The Great Tribulation on the one hand could refer to, uh, this, the, it's the worst of the worst tribulations experienced, okay? The worst tribulation the Christians experienced in all throughout history at their time here on this earth. And if you want, if you would like, um, Matthew chapter 24, I'm not going to read them all for this sake, but I'll give you some references if you'd like to read them later on your own time. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 through 31 and then Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 27. And Luke chapter 21, verse 20 through 28. Those three verses, again, the Gospels, who in their own different ways, uh, because of what God has given to them, relate what they, they, are, they know and they have seen, is that in those Gospels there, they describe this end time when Satan will be let loose. That last bit of time in which God says he will let Satan loose and let Satan do all that he wishes here on this earth, and it will be great tribulation. Terror and, and persecution and destruction. Okay? God says it in Scripture. But one thing I want to caution you. Remember, this is a, a reading of comfort. We don't have to be scared of that time. And I'll be really honest, we don't have a lot of understanding of this. Why would God? Do? I don't know. We don't know. We don't have the whys of what God will do there. Right. So don't go down the path or road and think, well, why would God allow that to happen? And what not? What do we do know? We know that even when God says he will allow Satan to go, come out and be loosed from his chains and to do these things in great destruction one more time, more than he already is, because already now Satan's in this world. We know that we do not have to fear. We know that those who are sealed in his name, which right here. End of this verse. Those who are, have been washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Those who are baptized in his name. Those who are called by him. Point being, the Christians, those are, who are the Lord's, they have nothing to fear. Even in that time. Even in that great tribulation, there's nothing to fear. Because God will protect his people. Okay? So likely, most people, when they, most commentators, is, they've studied this and they've looked and That is one of the most common references that's meant here by the Great Tribulation. So these are the ones coming out of that Great Tribulation, that great and worst time. Okay? But there is another aspect to consider that I think is rather valid as well. That there's also those who, exi who live in this world who won't die before, and before Christ comes back, right? Many of us here, what if Christ would come back right now? We haven't died. We are here today. We experience tribulations today, right? Maybe it's not the worst of the worst, but whether we categorize them however which way we do, there's tribulations, persecution, suffering, right? So there's also uh, many commentators as they've read this and studied this that, that show us that there's validity too in seeing that it doesn't have to mean just that one time when Satan's left back, but also can pack into this term. The ones, who are these people who are dressed in white, surrounding God in heaven forever and ever, singing him hymns of praise and giving him their, their honor and their glory? It's Christians who've gone through persecution and suffering and tribulation. That's us you. Okay. 
So who gets to be those arrayed in white robes with God forever singing him praise of honor and glory? You and you. And I could go on throughout the room, right? And everyone who's on the air listening, and they are too claimed by Christ in his name, right? The point being, who's, who's in heaven with God in that church triumphant? Everyone who believes in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay. All right, so... And you'll see that today we're spending a little bit more time on Revelation than some of the others, as we'll get to. Uh, I think there's good reason for that, because Revelation, as I said, can be rather difficult as we, we stem through it. Also, I believe Pastor Thomas might be going this route next week in his sermon, so helpful in your preparation to hear the sermon next week. But don't take that, you know, he might change. So that's, that's his own volition, change which, which uh, scripture reading he'll preach on next week. Okay, verse 15 through 17 here. We, then we have this, this um, scene of uh, even more depicted. What does it look like, this church triumphant? What does this church in heaven look like? Okay, verse 15. They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. Serving him day and night also meaning that they are worshiping God day and night. So what's it look like to be in heaven with God forever? Worship. Okay? One thing I will note here, though. We don't have any more specifics in this part, in these verses, of what this worship looks like. We simply know that it's worshiping God. And we see that there's much more of an emphasis here on um, God and the Lamb, rather than the people and what their worship looks like. But rather, the emphasis on God and Jesus Christ, the Lamb, and what they've done for the people. Because ultimately, God is the center of our worship. Worship is truly what is God serving us. Okay. Then in verse 15, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Now, that's the translation from ESV. I don't know um, anyone's using any other translations, but you could also there in that shelter them with his presence. There's also this word that some translated to mean they will tent. God will tent them or tabernacle them. Okay. And I, I know it sounds weird to say tent because in our language, that doesn't sound all that smooth and make a whole lot of sense necessarily. But think about it throughout the rest of Scripture again. And when God, so one, when tents are used, you think about, just think of a tent if you go camping. I went camping a couple months ago. Can I do these sidebars when I'm on the radio like this? Okay. I went camping a couple weeks ago with my family. I will say nothing more, and I have nothing negative to say, but it's close quarters. Okay? Especially with two kids under the age of two. No, three. Okay? Tenting is close. It's an intimate space, right? Okay? So if you think about there's that, but then also more importantly, we think about how God tented or tabernacled with his people. Look throughout the Old Testament scripture when God says that he tabernacled with the people. Again, our English translations don't always bring that word out so much, but the Hebrew words that are used so much throughout Old Testament is this God tabernacled with them. And one, you have the tabernacle, right? Where God's people came together. He said, this is where he'll be. That's his presence. That is where God dwelled with his people. Keywords with his people. And so here God is saying that those who sit on the throne, he will shelter them. He will tent or tabernacle with them in his presence. And so right here and now, we have God with us, but we always don't have it in all the physical senses we'd like, right? I mean, I don't see God directly in front of me where I can touch him, and all five of my senses can know and experience God in the way that I might like to. But in heaven here, in this part, it talks about how, with this word to tabernacle, God truly dwelling with his people in every fullest sense of it, we will get to experience him fully. I mean, we have him now. I'm not saying we're not, we don't have him now, so don't hear me wrong. But to see that even with all of our five human senses that God will make perfect in that new creation, that new day, we will get to see and experience and hear everything. God right here with us, dwelling, tabernacling with us. And that's a beautiful picture. To be in that ultimate closeness, to truly see and experience God. So, then we continue on in verse 16. They shall hunger no more, nor thirst anymore. Okay? We see that right now. Jesus has already told us in the Gospels where we hear Jesus' word. The one who comes to him shall thirst no more, right? We know that as Christians right here and now, our souls don't have to thirst anymore. Because we're full. God has filled us up. His Holy Spirit has, has quenched our thirst with his love, his righteousness, everything he has to give. But here, describes even the physical nature. Even in that, heavenly, in that heaven, even our physical human hunger and thirst will be no more. 
We won't even have that. So not, not only are our souls quenched in hunger and thirst, but also our true bodies as well. It's this full and utter complete picture that God will give. Okay, And then the last uh, reference here, that um, in verse 17, the last part of it, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And you think about, I don't really need to go on likely of when we experience crying and tears in our life, but it's incredibly prevalent. And then you think about in Scripture how people mourned over when people died or were sick and suffering. They even cried. Jesus even wept, right? You have people crying over sinful things that happened and were done, and none of that will be anymore. There will be no more death, no more sick, no more suffering, no more sin, no more crying. So wrapping this up here, this, this reading from Revelation chapter 7 here, what we can see is that, one, God keeps his promises. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, all these things that God has said will come and will be. And here in Revelation, this picture of this church in heaven, God shows us that it will be true. He's going to keep every single one of those promises. Okay? And the second being that there's no reason to fear. As God's people, you don't have to fear what it will be like. You don't have to fear the tribulation and persecution you experience now. You don't have to fear what might come in the future. Because no, you're marked by God. You're his. Any questions or comments from the group here before we go on to our next reading? No? All right. I can keep going. I love doing this. First John chapter 3. I will read for us again our reading from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. All right. So we get into this passage here from 1 John chapter 3. And, and what I want to draw your attention to is that throughout this epistle, 1 John, you see a stark contrast between two groups. Two groups we've likely heard about plenty of times, the believing and the unbelieving. Those who believe in Jesus Christ and those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Especially next week, considering our observance of All Saints Day, you can gather which one we're going to emphasize. The believing. And that's what this portion of the reading emphasizes. The believing. Okay? Because, again, we have this reading that gives us great comfort as we remember those who we love we've lost, who've departed in the faith. And also as we look forward to the rest of our life and know that that end too will come for us. So we get this comfort again from God's word. So, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Okay, and this sea here is not, uh, not, not, not a very physical sea, of course, right? But rather the fact that we see with our mind and our heart and ultimately with the Spirit's guidance. Because without the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't be able to see what kind of love the Father has given us. But more importantly, look at this phrase here. When it says, what kind of love? That what kind of? It's very unique construction in, in the grammar here and in, in John's writing here and specifically. Because it's a comparison of high degree. Other translations that you could possibly use here. Not that this is insufficient, but also to help us understand more deeply. Instead of what kind of, we could say, how glorious or how wonderful. Point being, this is a significant thing here. What kind of love, how glorious, how wonderful is the love that God has given us, the Father, that we should be called children of God? Now, you're going to see, because there's only three verses, so there's plenty to talk about, but you're going to see we're going to be a little picky for some good reasons here. Then, now look at that we should be called. Point being, it's not on us. It's on God. God calls us. It's God's work for us. God doing the action, which again, like every day that we should emphasize, but especially it's neat that we're doing it today here, celebrating Reformation Day. Again, it's not by our works of the law, but by God's grace. So by God's grace, he is the one who calls us. And what does he call us to be? Children of God. 
So this children of God, of course, doesn't refer to necessarily um, any specific age, because no matter how old you are, you can be a child of God, okay? Why'd your eyes get big when I said that one? I'm just kidding. No matter how old you are, child of God, because this relation, it's just a relationship that's described us, because think about that relationship, that parent-to-child relationship. Even if you don't have children, all of us at some point were children, right, with parents, and unfortunately, I, you know, I must say, because many of us experience, that we experience sinful human parents that maybe don't do the things that they should have or do things that they shouldn't have done. And we can't think about that here because what God is describing is what he designed as the perfect relationship between parent and child. That close relationship, that intimate relationship, that relationship of love and care, discipline, instruction, okay, And we see even here that he's called the Father, the Heavenly Father, the Father who's perfect. So no matter what kind of Father we experience in this world, the Heavenly Father is perfect. Nothing ever wrong with him. He is the perfect Heavenly Father. And rather, we are given this privilege to be called God's children. Uh, One interesting note I found uh, as I was reading the commentary on this is that here in this writing of John, He does not call us sons of God. If you've heard the rest of Scripture, you might see in different places and remember, the Holy Word of God often refers to us as sons of God. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's interesting I note that because when when you read John's writing here, he reserves son of God specifically for Jesus. Son of God specifically referring to Jesus Christ himself. Rather, we are made children of God. Children of God. Sorry for my grammar. We are children of the Son of God. Doesn't mean we can't say we're sons of God because we are sons and daughters of God, right? But here, just another way that John pulls emphasis on who we are and who God is. So then verse 2, beloved. Again, this drawing out this relationship of parent to child. But now, we see it not so much between God and us, but how John feels himself to be of that parental role. That parental role who cares for his children. So John's not taking the place of God. He's not at all trying to take God's place. But simply showing that in God's stead here on earth, John was caring as a father for his children, for those who are his also believers, whom he's been called to care for and love as a father would love. And then verse 3. Sorry, I lost my place. There we go. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. What we will be has not yet appeared. And this is a key for this reading, but for all next weekend's readings. This whole now, not yet distinction. The fact that right here and now, yes, you are children of God. You are God's. You are his. You are claimed. You are marked. You are made righteous and holy. But what you are to be fully, fully righteous, completely get rid of the sinner, because right now we're saint and sinner. Get rid of the imperfections. That hasn't come yet. That will come in heaven with God forever. That will come when we are called to him in eternal heavenly glory. So now, yes, we're his. But what we are to be fully has not yet come. So for some, that might be, okay, come on, let's get there, right? I want that part, right? I mean, we should. So there's great hope and looking forward and expectation. You know, I had a, there was a preacher at Concordia University of Chicago where I went, which, saying this now, he's still there, but this is a good thing, okay? He always ended his sermons uh, at chapel. Every single day there was chapel. And he always ended his sermons by saying, come soon, Lord Jesus, which I later found out. It's right out of Revelation, okay? So there, it's quoting scripture. But also, I'll be really honest, when I first heard this, I was like, why does he keep asking for Jesus to come? I mean, because most often, right, I mean, we're tempted to be here. And so I'm not saying I was, like, all tied to the world and super pagan. But at the same time, I was like, why does he keep wanting Jesus to come so soon? Every day he's asking for Jesus to come soon. But now look at it. Look how beautiful that is. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon and bring what you say is not yet fully what you are promising to us. Go back to that reading from Revelation. Come soon and bring in full worship and praise. Standing in your glory and presence. Yeah, come soon, Lord Jesus. Okay. All right, any questions on that? Because I wanted to save a little more time with our last reading. Any questions on 1 John? Also, there's only three verses. No questions. No one wants to put me on the spot first time back. I'm back on the radio here, so. 
All right, let's turn in our Bibles, or if you're looking at the handout, Matthew chapter 5. Another, I would hope, familiar passage for many of us, but also a passage of Scripture that does deserve, well, all Scripture deserves it, but especially here, deserves a little bit more slow um, reading to be sure that we're really hearing what God has to say for us. So we're going to read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There ends our reading for next week. So, the Beatitudes. Okay? The Beatitudes is, uh, quite frankly, actually part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Because we see in verse 1, Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain. And he sat down. His disciples came to him. And there he opened his mouth and he taught to them. So, we see, and it all goes all the way through chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel. Yeah, all the way through chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, which Jesus gives his Sermon on the Mount. His Sermon on the Mount that has many other teachings in it and instructs God's people about many other things. Just to look at the subtitles, which, as I always say, subtitles are not necessarily scriptural. Well, they aren't scriptural. But people who study scripture did a, well job, did a good job in bringing out what the focus is there. You have titles that he taught about on that sermon about anger and lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies... We get the Lord's Prayer, and we go on. Point being, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount has a lot packed into it. But the Beatitudes are really kind of, as I read Dr. Gibbs, Matthew Gibbs' commentary on this, beautiful way he puts it is the Beatitudes is the doorway to the rest of the sermon. The Beatitudes is what gets us into the rest of the sermon. Because quite frankly, without understanding the Beatitudes and their truth and what they're said to be, it's difficult to really hear the rest of the sermon. And really truly hear Jesus' teaching. Because the Beatitudes are blessing. Okay, it's Jesus is blessing upon this people. Before then, he gives them the teaching that is to uh, call, them, call them to do certain things. Call them as his people and his disciples and to warn them. So you have the blessing that then leads into the calling and warning of the people. Without understanding your blessing, and I'll just spoiler alert here. Blessing that you are God's blessed by him then you're not going to understand and truly be seen what else Christ has for you. So we dig into this a little bit more. Beatitudes, as I said, are a blessing. Um, and there's a couple different groups here of these blessings that he pronounces upon the people. But the key thing that I want you to see is that um, you start off with a lot of, in the language, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, emphasizing they, for they are, for the people are. But then finally... In verse uh, 11, you have this switch. Instead of blessed are they, theirs is the kingdom, it goes to you. So here again is where there's this doorway theme that we get to see emphasized. Blessed are they, and now he's directing it to you because then he's going to go into the rest of the, the sermon telling you that you, in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And he goes on from there to teach and instruct. Okay, so you'll see this, this switch. All right. Okay, so let's break these down and look at them a little bit deeper. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here we have the poor in spirit. What is meant by that? Okay, and here's the direct one that I want us to, to understand. The meaning of those who are poor in spirit is someone who must have their spiritual needs provided by another. It's a direct quote from commentary. Okay, I didn't think of those, that wording. 
but it's true. And the key reason I bring out that commentary quote is because when he wrote that, he wrote another with a capital A. Poor in spirit is someone who needs their spiritual needs provided by another. Key word, another, by God. So by that definition, I'm poor in spirit. And you're poor in spirit. Everyone, every human being is poor in spirit because we can't provide our spiritual needs on our own. It comes from God. Okay? All of us need God to provide us. Or put it another way, all of us need to hear God's good news. But look at the second half of that. So there's the poor in spirit. Everyone needs to hear God's good news. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who are blessed by God get to inherit the kingdom of heaven. So right off there, again, this isn't an instruction. This isn't say, go be poor in spirit. This is simply pronouncing we are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So it's a beautiful thing to hear this because God is saying we need him to provide what we need and he gives it to us. He gives this kingdom of heaven. And again, I will say that here we see this now, not yet theme come out again. Your kingdom of heaven is yours. Every single one of you who believe in God, you receive the kingdom of heaven already. It's yours. God's eternal life, forgiveness, salvation, his promises, they're yours. But again, you haven't experienced them fully, to the full extent as we saw in Revelation and as we hear the rest of Scripture. So is it yours? Yes. But also not fully yet. Okay. So this is a beautiful statement of promise and God's grace. We go on, blessed are those, uh, or sorry, yeah. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And the key word here is that, or a key emphasis here is that they are mourning in the present tense. They're mourning here and now, right? We're here in this world. I already said it once before from our other reading. We mourn a lot in this world. Plenty of things that are sad and horrific. Things that make us terribly sad. And, and, and we have much to mourn in this world. But, as we see in there, they shall be comforted. Okay? Again... There's this now, not yet theme coming through. Because look at those words. Blessed are those who mourn. Per, present tense. They're mourning right now. That's us. We mourn right now, right? But then it's a little interesting. At first read, you might think, they shall be comforted. They will be. Well, does that mean we get it now or we get it later? Yes. Yes. <laughs> both, right? Okay. Again, this both. This now, not yet. So... Yes, we are comforted right now, and it's actually, uh, I just thought of this, if you hear Pastor Thomas preaching this morning, or you will hear him coming up, okay? He talks about this, that even right now, in the here and now, we have much, and he goes more with this, uh, this, uh, the direction that the scripture, Psalm 46, is taking us with the fear and anxiety. But even though we have all that, even though we might feel alone, we have God with us. Right here and now, we have God to comfort us. But also, we know how great God will comfort us when he will take away that mourning. And we see, as it said there in Revelation, there will be no more tears. Okay? They will be comforted. And honestly, as long as we live in this world, we're still here, afflicted by sin, there's still going to be mourning. There's no way around that. Because we should mourn sin. It's a horrible thing. We should mourn death. When we lose loved ones, when people in this life lose their world because of death, it's a horrible thing. We should mourn that. But also mourn with comfort and joy and hope in Christ alone. So, verse 5, blessed are the meek. Some translations render it lowly. Okay, so this being a condition, a condition of being powerless. He here emphasis, though, on powerless, someone who's not able to save themselves. So we're not talking about if you've got a lot of power at work versus he or she doesn't have power at work. We're talking about not being able to save themselves. Okay. Who do you think that might apply to? Us. All of us, right? Because if you think about it, we go back to again, and we talk about this today, Reformation Day, not by our own works. There's nothing we could do. We are, not, we are powerless when it comes to our salvation. Completely powerless. Which for many people, that makes us jittery, right? We like to be in control. We like to have power. We like to think we can do something. And it's like, you know what? Okay, yeah, Jesus did it for me. But you know what? Well, seriously, what can I do? Nothing. Nothing. We are powerless in the sense of our salvation. 
But again, look at, look at this blessing that God pronounces, Jesus pronounces on those who are powerless or meek. They shall inherit the earth. Despite being powerless and able to do anything about our salvation, God gives great inheritance. Okay? And then we continue here with verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Interesting that if you actually compare, look at these two verses together, 5 and 6. Powerless, right? being lowly, you know, being lowly in this world, that doesn't, wouldn't you think that that produces a craving? I would say it would, and I think that we can see this here. When you're powerless, when you're weak, you crave more, right? And you crave, ultimately, if you take powerless in another sense of the word, the fact that it does mean that one who can't save themselves, but also when you're powerless, you're hungering, you're thirsting for something, right? In the sense of being salvation, you hunger and thirst for, hunger and thirst for anything I can do to earn salvation. Hunger and thirst for God's great grace, more importantly. So then we see in verse 6, those who hunger and thirst. Another reference in a different way to describe us. Those who are meek and lowly. This hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Because those who can't affect their salvation on their own are powerless in their own salvation. Yeah, they're going to hunger and thirst for every bit of God's righteousness. Because knowing his righteousness is the only way they can have that salvation. So we hunger and thirst for his righteousness. But, as we've seen, there's a reason we have the lectionary, because people spend a lot of time putting it together, making sure it tied together. And here we see another beautiful tie to our other readings. Revelation, how did it describe our hunger and thirst? As no more. So although we hunger and thirst, and right now we know that our soul has been given everything, we know that eternally there will be no more hunger and thirst. Souls completely satisfied, bodies completely satisfied. So those who hunger and thirst, God, they will be satisfied. No more hunger, no more thirst. All right. Verse 7 through 12. Now we're going to take these a little bit more. Okay. So verse 7 through 12, it kind of describes a little bit more how there's these blessings given to disciples who are in union with Jesus Christ. Another way to say those of us who are in Christ's name. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So they are merciful describing disciples, only because God has shown mercy. Okay? This isn't an exhortation or a command, go be merciful. This is a pronouncement, again, remember, all these Beatitudes are a pronouncement of what God has done for his people. Pronouncement of blessing upon these people. Blessed are the merciful. Simply saying, they are merciful because God has shown them mercy. Jesus, in his great, perfect righteousness and mercy, he showed them mercy. He showed them what true mercy is. And then he gives them mercy. And interesting, as, you, as it's put here, to be blessed are the merciful, that, that's just calling out their identity right there. He doesn't say, blessed are the people who are merciful, which he could have. But he states it, blessed are the merciful. That's their identity. You have your name, right? Everyone in this room has their own name. I would call you by name. Well, I'm trying, right? I'm still, still getting on some of them, okay? But if I call you by name, that's your name. That's what identifies you. Here, he says, blessed are the merciful, calling them the merciful. That's your identity. As one called in Christ's name, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are the merciful ones because Christ has shown you mercy. And then it goes on that saying, for they shall receive mercy. Okay? And then verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart, meaning an innocent motive. To stand in, to, to one, that refers to one standing before God as a forgiven sinner. What, it refers to one who is in right standing with God. Innocent motive, you're in right standing with God. Pure heart. Okay? Now this one, I encourage you if you want your reading also to read Psalm 23 and 24. Because... There's a whole lot of other background that if you read those two psalms, they really tie together on the language that's used here, especially in this um, beatitude for the uh, pure in heart. But all that being said, if you dive deeper into Psalm 23 and 24, we see what it looks like to be this pure in heart, to be these people as forgiven sinners standing before God. They are looking trustingly to God. 
Standing before him, looking to him, worshiping him. And the other key part of that, when you look in those Psalms and, and that background informs this, is that there are people who are worshiping God and not anything else. Not an idol worshiper. So one here who is pure in heart is someone who is look, looking with all their trust to God and not worshiping anything or anyone else. Okay? And so Jesus here in his Beatitudes, blessed, speaks his blessing to those who, who know what it means to seek the true and living God. Those who know the one true God, who seek the one true God in him only, that's who Jesus is pronouncing his blessing on. Okay? Doesn't mean that they understand everything, that they're pure in heart, so they got it all, they got it all locked down. But simply they are looking at God alone. So again, you could read this and hear the blessing Christ pronounces for you. Blessed are the pure in heart, you who seek one true God, who know who God is, you shall see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Okay, the peacemakers being a reference to disciples as they bring the message of, of the kingdom of heaven, the message of the reign of God to the world. The peacemakers, the one who bring Christ's good news to the world. Okay, because think about it, good news, that brings peace. The good news of, what God, of who God is, what he's done, who Jesus Christ is and what he's done, that is the good news. And the good news when it's preached and proclaimed brings peace. And I'm not sure we live in a world where there's still plenty of um, unrest and lack of peace. But we know that even in the midst of that, Christ is bringing peace. Where his word is preached and proclaimed, peace is brought. Maybe we don't get to see it in exactly the way we want, but even in our hearts, we know that there's peace. So the peacemakers are the ones who bring this good news of Jesus Christ. Okay? For they shall be called sons of God. Here is a reference where Scripture does call us sons of God. Okay? I told you earlier we were just going to talk about being children of God. Here we are referred to as sons of God. Again, being part of God's family, that holy, perfect family. Verse 10, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Persecuted for Christ's name. Okay? And also, there's some who take that this righteousness' sake, just they, they take that to be almost translated for Jesus' sake. Because you could. Jesus is righteousness. And the whole point being that those who are persecuted for um, Jesus' name, for those who are, are trusting in his name, preaching and proclaiming his good news, those who are persecuted that for his name, they will be blessed. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, and then we have the last two Beatitudes. Blessed are those when others revile you and persecute you. And then it ends with verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who were before you. Another reminder that it's God's work. Persecution will happen. Okay, and this, is, this being the last that then leads into the rest of the sermon, he's going to talk about then, in the next section, being salt and light in the world. Talk about the other things the world's going to want to convince us to do. The world's going to persecute Christians. But the prophets were persecuted before you, and yet God provided for them. God sustained them. Okay? God's always been at work, and he always will be. And it's God's work. Who, gets, who sustains his people. And ultimately, on, this day, on that day, as we look at All Saints Day, we reflect to the fact that even if persecution should lead to death, God has sustained each and every person in his name because that person will get eternal life in his kingdom forever. And that is the great joy that we get to focus on on All Saints Day. So just to wrap up, before I'll take any questions, again, these Beatitudes, they're not making these ethical demands on people. Not exhorting them, do this, do that, don't do that, don't do that. It's blessing. Jesus Christ pronouncing his blessing on his people. And again, they do have this now, not yet. You know, here you have blessing, you are blessed, but some of it, not yet. Not fully to the way Christ will bring it when he comes back in eternity. Okay? And so this then leads us into the rest of Jesus' sermon. Any questions or comments from our group today? Yeah. So, like, sure, that's a great question. So, being it, are we wrong in saying blessed are those who earthly are weak and meek, maybe not having as much means, right? Are we wrong in saying that when here I'm, I'm saying it's more time about poor in spirit? That's your question, right? I would say if you're trying to directly quote this and exactly what this text is saying here in chapter 5, it's a little bit incorrect. 
In the sense that here, Christ is reflecting that we are blessed who are poor in spirit, therefore he gives us, and, and he goes on with his blessings. However, we're not wrong in saying that because even though we have little in this world, we are truly blessed. And so I would say, depending on who you're talking to, say it, right? You know the people, and this key word being relationship. If I were to just go around and just quote this left and right, maybe I'm misusing the context. But if you know this person, and you're talking with them, and you're in a relationship, yeah, you can share. You are blessed, though you're meek and lowly in this world. Now, maybe this could lead to the true exposition of this, and that would be beautiful, because then you could talk to them about spiritual things, because that's really ultimately the, the center of it all. So that's a great question. All right, no more questions? Let's have a word of prayer as we conclude our time together. Gracious Lord, you have blessed us so richly. We thank you with unending thanks, Lord, that you have blessed us in so much in this world, many earthly wealth and riches that you have given us. Even if they may seem little in this world, you've given us much because you've given us all that we need. But more importantly, Lord, we thank you. We thank that you have blessed us in spirit and soul, that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, that with him we know we have eternal life, that we know we have the promises, your promises which you will always keep true. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.